When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Brooke Masters, the company's editor. With me today are Caroline Binham, financial regulation correspondent, and special guest Bob Penn, a partner with Cleary Gottlieb. Down the line from New York, we have Ben McClanahan, the U.S. banking editor. This week, we will be discussing global regulation and where does the consensus go now that the heads of some of the biggest organizations are changing. We'll also look at the fraud case against Barclays and its top executives and at the impact of the Trump administration on deregulation in the U.S. So let's start with global regulation. Caroline, tell us about the changes we're expecting. There's basically a change of the guard that's coming by the end of this year at the top of the rulemakers that sets the standards globally that banks and financial institutions follow. So that's the Financial Stability Board, where Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, currently chairs, and then the Basel Committee, which is uh, chaired by Stefan Ingvets, who's also the governor of the Swedish Central Bank. Now, they're both due to step down by the end of the year. And, you know, that would be mildly interesting. But I think what's uh, particularly pointed about it is that it's coming at a time when there are wider questions about the direction of global financial regulation and whether the consensus that the FSB and the Basel Committee helped construct in the wake of the financial crisis, whether that's fragmenting, particularly in the wake of, first of all, Brexit in the UK, but also the Trump administration in the United States deregulatory push that we're going to hear a bit more about um, from Ben McClanahan. So, Bob, what do you think is happening to the regulatory consensus? Is there a change? We exist at a sort of an interesting pivotal point, I think, in terms of the regulatory reform agenda. And there's a couple of clear themes, I think, that are emerging. Firstly, inevitably, we saw the pendulum swing following the financial crisis towards a much more intrusive, very highly complicated regulatory framework, one which, when we're all concerned about the risk of greater bank failures, the cost in terms of complexity and impact on you know, broader markets was very much a secondary issue. As time has gone by, and of course, as the political situation has become more volatile post-crisis, uh, it was almost inevitable that one would see a degree of reflection and potentially looking at the pendulum sort of starting to swing the other way. And where the pendulum st- starts to swing the other way, of course, it's inevitable that you know each major economic block, having had its own crisis having its own unique set of problems, that the consensus that we had when we were all in the trenches in the crisis would start to break up a little. And I think it's it's been interesting to see, particularly on the US side with the Choice Act, with the uh, Treasury's uh, report of a couple of weeks ago, to see how the US is looking at that consensus, the question of whether one clings on to the, the Basel process or starts 
to diverge from it in a limited way or alternatively simply walks away from it altogether, which was, I think, uh, what people were concerned about Trump doing maybe three or four months ago. That remains an interesting kind of point of observation for us. But my own sense is that for now, you know, the, the US government and the European authorities are clinging on to the Basel piece, but we're starting to see erosion at the margins of it. And you see that uh, through the Treasury report, you see it through the European proposals uh, amending the capital requirements regulation, where we're sort of taking individual bits and going, well, they're not quite right for Europe, or they're not quite right for the US. So we just want to tweak the rules a little bit. And you see it from, for example, the Treasury's proposal to remove US treasuries from the leverage ratio. It's a a big deal in in real terms for the banks in terms of their capital requirements, but it is part of the erosion of that consensus, I think. Caroline, what are we seeing on the European side? The thing about Basel Committee right now, and this is Basel rather than FSB, is that we are locked in this continuing spat over a very technical tweak to existing post-crisis rules that are intended to stop banks gaming these rules that are already in place. And it was really some of the main European countries, so France, Germany, that were the stalwarts of this resistance to change. And that argument is still ongoing. We still haven't had any resolution. And um, we heard some pretty punchy statements before Christmas that the Europeans were kind of ready to walk away from the table, which is a really massive deal when you think that the Europeans were really the main core constituents of the Basel Committee in its early history. And the US has always had a bit of an ambivalent attitude towards Basel. It's always a bit wary of international forums that sort of can impose rules without going through the kind of normal sovereign procedures. So if you have, on the one hand, European scepticism and then ongoing American cynicism about these forums, then I think that really goes to the viability of these institutions going forward. And I think what's also to note is that this is happening at a time when Europe particularly is scratching its head about what's going to happen with Brexit. How are various institutions going to be regulated? How are the various authorities going to be talking to one another? And we've heard things like super equivalents being floated by the governor of the Bank of England. And I guess Basel and the FSB could be seen as the conduits through which this information flow and discussion might happen. But that would require real buy-in from all the constituent members of those rulemakers, so all the various countries and jurisdictional seats. Bob, do you think that's likely to happen? To be honest, no, I don't. I mean, I think that Certainly when one looks at, at Brexit and looks at what you know banks and financial institutions are worried about on the ground around this, it's very much around you know the domestic, the local responses. And and as Caroline says, you know, the, the top of the, the list, frankly, for the major banks is the fragmentation question associated with planning for and implementing a Brexit strategy. And here one comes back to, you know, Mark Carney made a speech, I think, a few weeks ago, where he sort of contrasted the high road versus the low road, you know, a sort of a continued globalised approach to bank regulation, focusing on, for example, cooperation in resolution, common global standards, continuing to permit branching, emphasising efficiency, but relying on cross-border cooperation if if problems emerge, as against the low road of fragmentation, subsidiarisation, etc. 
And it's quite clear, I think, looking at the, again, the European proposals, the amendments to the capital requirements framework, looking at the beginnings of the PRA's approach to dealing with European firms as they go through the Brexit process. Both sides are slightly stood at this cusp of making a decision of, well, do we go down the low road, force subsidiarisation, get rid of cooperation, accepting that it, that is unpopular from the financial sector perspective, but also arguably from the broader economic perspective, because it traps liquidity, traps capital, and ultimately increases the cost of, of the financial sector overall. And for my money, that is not an issue that is really capable of being dealt with by the FSB or Basel. It's not really within their remits. And it comes down much more ultimately to the willingness of of regulators to stand up before the politicians who are their masters to say, actually, we need this greater degree of cooperation. We need the open markets piece. And I, I don't think that message is yet really sinking in either with the European or, frankly, the UK authorities sufficiently. It will be interesting to see what happens. I suggest that we might be seeing a car crash sometime in the future over these issues. So now now let's turn to the second question of the day, which is the very lowbrow issue of fraud. And because Barclays, the bank, and four of its former senior executives, including former chief executive John Farley, have been charged with fraud in connection with something that happened a long time ago. Caroline, can you tell us about it? As you say, the Serious Fraud Office this week has filed charges against Barclays and four of its former top brass relating to two fundraisings that it did in 2008 at the height of the financial crisis when investors from the Middle East ploughed billions of pounds into the bank and that essentially staved off UK government control at a time when some of the biggest banks in the UK, such as RBS and Lloyd, uh, then had massive taxpayer bailouts. So what the SFO has been looking at over the last five years are what the bank actually promised to Qatar at the same time as this investment. So we're looking at two what they call advisory service agreements. So those agreements saw Barclays pledge £322 million in exchange for Qatar helping the bank develop its business in the region. And then there's a $3 billion loan, which was made by Barclays just as a second October fundraising was closing. Is there anything wrong per se in having an advisory service agreement or in lending money to somebody who is also investing in your bank? Okay, so to take the first one, there's nothing wrong per se with an agreement whereby money is pledged for legitimate services rendered. And the bank, I should point out, has said previously that the the two ASAs were for legitimate services. But in the context of a fundraising, it's important that the market and other potential investors get all the available information about what's going on and whether there's going to be preferential treatment for one investor that they need to know about. There's then the question of the loan. Now, Credit Suisse actually did a very similar deal with Qatar in October 2008 at the time of its own 10 billion Swiss franc capital raising. But the difference is that Credit Suisse disclosed that loan to the market and it also got regulatory approval from the Swiss authorities. And normally the Swiss rules would outlaw such uh, an arrangement. But because of the market jitters at the time, the Swiss authorities decided to let Credit Suisse go ahead and do it. So the point is that Credit Suisse was transparent about the transaction, but Barclays kept the loan quiet. And there are questions whether what that amounted to was propping up the bank secretly. So the money essentially going 
to Qatar to be reinvested into the bank. The bank would contest that in the loan documentation, which is very heavy, there's a specific clause that outlaws such reinvestment. So I suppose it will all go to the court to determine whether these agreements were needed to have been disclosed. Is it established that they were not disclosed? The first advisory service agreement in June was disclosed, or the existence of it. The the quantum, the amount that was being paid over, wasn't disclosed. In October, the difference between the two deals was the, the October fundraising was primarily structured as a debt deal, and the disclosure requirements around debt transactions are slightly less onerous than those around equity. So the second uh, extension of the original ASA was never disclosed to the market. And it was actually a larger amount. It was £280 million that the bank was then pledging to Qatar for the, the same sort of thing, helping promote Barclays' business in the Gulf region. We should note that all of the individuals involved have denied wrongdoing and at least one has specifically said that they asked for legal advice and were told what they were doing was legal. So this is obviously a hotly contested issue. Carolyn, what happens next? Immediately, in the short term, all the defendants, and that would include the bank or the bank's representative, will appear at Westminster Magistrates Court on July the 3rd. Likely, that will then get transferred to the Crown Court that tends to hear complex and high-value claims. Then will be, no doubt, a series of pretrial hearings. There will be the chance for the individuals and the bank to officially enter a plea. And then uh, the case may proceed to trial, and any trial probably at this rate won't be seen until 2019, looking at the standard court calendar at this moment. So it sounds like we're going to have a lot of unanswered questions for a long time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is sort of prime court reporting right here. And, you know, we've been waiting for this SFO decision for literally years. We still have a similar case that is being led by the Financial Conduct Authority, whose predecessor, the FSA, was actually the first to look at these transactions. The regulator had to stay its case pending the criminal probe. We then have a billion-dollar lawsuit filed by the glamorous financier Amanda Staveley, who put the Abu Dhabi side of the deal together in October 2008. And we have a whistleblowing claim from Mr. Bose, who's one of the defendants. So this is really the case that keeps on giving. Well, we look forward to hearing from you on the next installment. Thank you so much. Now we'll turn to U.S. banking deregulation. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, recently delivered a 147-page report packed with recommendations on how to lighten the load for many banks and credit unions. His principles, which are consistent with what Donald Trump had asked for, were instantly denounced by Democrats as giveaways to Wall Street. Ben McClanahan, our U.S. banking editor, sat down with Peter Nerby, a senior vice president at Moody's, to discuss what the report might mean for the stability of the banking sector. So, Peter, thanks very much for joining us. The big topic Uh, right now for for U.S. banking aficionados is the big Treasury Review, uh, which was released last week and uh, covers 150-odd pages of recommendations from the Treasury Department on exactly uh, what directions that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin wants to see uh, regulation evolve in over the next few years. And what did you make of it at Moody's? If you step back, the whole regulatory architecture that's been put in place post the financial crisis has been very, very beneficial for the bondholder. It has bolstered capital, it's bolstered liquidity, it's reduced the ability of firms to 
take carry positions and earn profits from that. This has been painful for the shareholder, mm-hmm. but very beneficial for the bondholder. And you can see that in the trend of, of bond prices, bond spreads, and you can see it in the equity returns these companies are, are dealing with. So in that context, were you dismayed to hear talk, or at least the, the impression that the Treasury Secretary is very keen to relax uh, standards on liquidity and capital ratios? I think that the policymakers are trying to manage a trade-off between growth in the economy and stability of the financial system. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy balance to get right. I I can appreciate that. But from our perspective, look at the bondholder, those capital and liquidity protections are pretty important. Mm -hmm. And if they were to be relaxed in a substantial way, that could be a rating issue at some point. Let's get into a couple of the the, the main strands of of Uh the report. Uh, Stress testing. The Treasury Secretary is talking about moving from a one-year cycle to a two-year cycle and also making some of the stress parameters a little less stressful. Again, from a bondholder's point of view, is is that a good idea? I think that one versus two-year, probably not a major issue for anybody. You know, positions take time in in many businesses. In in traditional commercial banking businesses, it takes a while to build up uh, positions. I think that relaxing the parameters of a test could potentially be negative. And, you know, the the question that, again, a trade-off that people are considering there is how to conduct the test and whether or not to include some of the large capital buffers that some of the larger banks have to include. So how that trade-off gets managed, Mm -hmm. again, we'll need to see the detail of that for us to be able to react. But our basic principle is stress testing has been – real contributor to the safety and soundness of the banking system that we see today. Mm-hmm. But Wall Street doesn't necessarily see it that way. The lower the equity buffer, the higher the returns on equity, which is the higher the, right. the bonuses they get paid. You know, it's very clear that some banks are are earning over their cost of capital, but not many. Mm-hmm. And uh, some really have work to do there. And some have been pretty transparent about it. I mean, if you look at the first quarter results, uh, Citigroup and Bank of America were still trading slightly below book value. Uh, some of the European banks are trading below book value. There's mm-hmm. a few banks that are trading above. And, you know, some have been pretty transparent about it. You know, Michael Corbett, chief of Citigroup, has said, we need to address the ROE problem we have. We need to be able to return more capital to shareholders. So mm-hmm. he's looking to you know, pass the stress test with yep. increasing room so that he can uh, return more to shareholders. So we're, mm-hmm. we expect that, a certain amount of that, and um, that's, that's what the managers have to do. And t- talking generally about the, um, the review, people describing it as, as a wish list for Wall Street, that, that could be a crude uh-huh. characterization, but what chance do you ascribe some of these measures to actually happening? It's very hard to handicap this at this stage. I think that, you know, there's more sympathy for trying to stimulate economic growth, I think, necessarily than relax constraints on banks that benefited from taxpayer bailouts a decade ago. Right. As an upshot, you're, you're negative, are you, on, on the banking system? I would say, actually, that you know, when we look at the fundamentals of the banking system today, we have a reasonably positive outlook on, on growth in the United States mm-hmm. and outside uh, the United States. We've cited some air pockets of risk that are out there. Yeah. But I would say a substantial rollback of regulation would be one of the bigger risks that we see. What, what are the big risks do you see? Is, is it a credit quality question at this point? For the big banks that I'm involved in the United States, they're in a very uh, different position 
than they were, you know, 10 years ago. The equity is up substantially. The uh, liquidity pools are up substantially. Mm -hmm. The diversification is, is still pretty strong. So if you look at what happened, for example, with, you know, oil and gas last year, right. there were some marks, but, you know, not dramatic. Mm -hmm. If you look at, say, you know, people are concerned about retail today, well, let's look at, at Citigroup. Citigroup has a, uh, you know, a retail partnership card business. It's probably about 7 or 8% of revenues of the firm, and not all of those cards are private label cards. So a, a bankruptcy of a retailer could, could impact a portfolio like that, but mm -hmm. in the context of the overall earnings of the company, probably very manageable. So we're, we're paying attention to that. We're paying attention to the, the auto loan trajectory. But I think the point is that the firms are more diversified, mm -hmm. and that's why many of our outlooks are, are broadly stable. Right. Any other big macro risks that you're, um, you're attentive yeah. to these days? You know, when we look at the big banks, as I mentioned, the outlook of our macro board is for, you know, decent growth in developed markets in 2017 and 2018, sort of 5%-ish growth in emerging G20 countries, 2017, 2018. Mm -hmm. For the big investment banks, what they will tell you is that long-term global economic growth is really what underpins our business. So that outlook is okay. But what we like to talk about, we talk about the air pockets that are out there, and there are a few, certainly. Yeah. We, we concern ourselves with the potential for a slowdown in China and the way that could come back through trade and financial channels and affect these banks. Mm -hmm. We are concerned about the leverage in many emerging markets, both on the public and private sector balance sheets. And we concern ourselves that, you know, the gradual tightening of monetary conditions is something that can sometimes create problems. And mm -hmm. the, the way it works out for these companies, for these big banks, is that can lead to some, some marks on positions and some credit spread widening. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's upset with some, some trading volumes and volatility. So you can have a bumpy quarter. Think back to the first quarter of last year. Yeah. You can have a very bumpy Everything quarter. Everything was going off. Right. China, commodities. Right. For the, the companies that I spend a lot of time on with the large trading operations, they can turn very quickly. So the question becomes, do you have the distribution? Do you have the risk management competence? Do you have the right philosophy on compensation to be able to deal with that through the cycle? That's how we tend to think about it. Mm -hmm. Peter, thanks very much for joining me. Great. Nice to be here, Ben. Thank you. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Caroline, Bob, and Ben. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Jotsna Singh. Until next week, goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.